The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Hey, this is Miles and Juan. I'm Miles. I'm Juan. <laughs> and we're two adversarial journalists back after a three-week hiatus or vacation, I guess. Uh, they thought they killed us off, but we're back with a vengeance for season two. No, they, they didn't kill us off. They, they were incorrect. No, yeah. Well, we should consider this like the premiere of season two. Yeah, we thought that. All right, fine. So we know that a lot of people miss us, obviously, all five of you. <laughs> <laughs> so today, to get caught up on news that's been happening, we're going to discuss um, two particular topics that are relevant, given the scheme of things. One is dynastic presidential politics, and why are all these people related to politicians? Why do they think they're entitled to the American presidency? And the second topic will be the great throwdown between Cornell West and Michael Eric Dyson. I really shouldn't call it a throwdown, because West hasn't responded to Michael Eric Dyson's 9,600-word creed against him, the New Republic, which came out last night, Sunday, on the um, TNR site. So let's get into topic one, Moz, talking about dynastic presidential politics. You thought this would be a good idea. So what do you think about Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush? And who's the third one? Rand Paul, whose father was Ron Paul. Well, let me just say, first and foremost, I'm ready for Hillary. And I'm excited. <laughs> I'm very excited. Who couldn't be excited? She's not using that. She doesn't use that word anymore. Isn't it? Or she's not using that term anymore. That was just her super pack, yeah. Well, I mean, like, who couldn't help but be excited about the prospect of Bush-Clinton 2016 as an election? I just find it ironic that uh, in a you know, supposedly meritocratic system where everyone has an equal shot at attaining positions of power and influence, that this... Two people from the same platonic family seem to keep being the ones who are in the position to take the helm of power. And I kind of, if we saw this in another country, we'd say that this country's been captured by, you know, elites have captured the institutions of political power. Mm-hmm. But in America, we seem to have some, so, somehow justified it or rationalized it away. I think it's scandalous that uh, it could be Bush-Clinton in 2016. Even the prospect of it is scandalous. Oh, um, Yeah. Push back on you just a little bit, though. You say it's scandalous, but you and I were talking a couple weeks ago. You're Canadian, as all of our loyal listeners are quite aware of. Um, and you said you you would support Justin Trudeau, <laughs> who's the, let me explain who he is. He's the leader of the Liberal Party in Canada, and he's also the son of, is it Pierre Trudeau? Pierre Trudeau, yeah. A former prime minister, and Justin is hoping to become prime minister this year in Canada. I totally agree with you. There was a poll which was done last week of Canadians of their choices for, you know, election, why they would choose either Harper, uh, Thomas Mulcair, who's head of the far-left NDP party, or Justin Trudeau. And Justin Trudeau is found to be, his positives were low, but he's found to be the least infuriating candidate. That was the term the poll used. So what are you saying? It's like a it's Canadian voter society it, between the lesser of two evils. Or it's just, three evils. It's an emergency there. You can't understand how horrible this government is right now. It's a parody of the George W. Bush administration. That's You're the referring to the Harper government. The Harper government. So in this circumstance, anyone <laughs> but him, I would vote for... You can not name someone. I vote for Bush, Jeb Bush over Stephen Harper. The opportunity arose. That's saying something. That's how bad it is. Well, speaking of Jeb Bush, obviously this man, um, he's a father, pardon me, he's a son of, what's his name, George H.W. Bush, a brother of George W. Bush. And the other day he commented, he said, I have to make people, or I have to convince people 
that this isn't like John Quincy Adams trying to redeem the Adams family name. Adams family name. John Adams is named John Quincy Adams, of course, became president. His father, John Adams, was second president of the United States. But the fact that Jeb Bush made that comment tells me that Jeb Bush has been thinking about redeeming the British family name definitely. after the failure, the abysmal failure that was W's administration and I would also argue the failure that was on George H.W. Bush. I think his family has a real problem with uh, these sort of slips, these sort of like uh, Freudian slips. Where they expose what they really think. Where they expose what they think. Because his brother said something ridiculous in the run-up to the Iraq war to like, well, after all, there's a man who tried to kill my father. Yes, so, yes. And we'll say, hey, are you going to war because of that reason? Is that the real reason? And then the question that one can pose to Jeb Bush, are you running for president to redeem, to your, redeem family? your family's name? Is it more important that you um, cleanse the Bush name? Or is it more important that you implement whatever you know, stupid-ass policies he's pushing as a Republican candidate. Oh, what, what is it? Why do you want to run? I think that's good. Why, why, why do you want to run exactly? That would, be, that would be the question. All these reporters, like, chasing Clinton's um, um, Scooby van <laughs> in Iowa last week, all these reporters asking Bush about all this money that he's trying to raise to push out the other Republicans, which, by the way, doesn't seem to be working. That's the, If I had the opportunity as a journalist to question either of those, that would be the very first question I ask them. Why do you want to be president? Because I can't think of any big idea being pushed no, by no. Bush or being pushed by Clinton that explains to me as a voter just why you want to be president. You, you've got to have a better answer than this is entitled to me or this is what I want to do. Particularly, I think in, I mean, obviously my politics are left of center, particularly I think in Jeb Bush's case, your fucking brother was just president, um, You're just one president, or was chosen president, or, you know, dean president 15 years ago. What? Why are you back? Don't you people talk? Just leave us yeah, alone. Exactly. You want to not stop until the White House and America's flaming wreckage behind the, <laughs> behind the legacy of your family? I mean, they still have time to articulate what it is, but I've seen no indication. I cannot tell you what, you know, they stand for other than name recognition or as you mentioned, the family legacy, which people are comfortable with, perhaps, or or putting forth like typical boilerplate talking centrist points. bullshit. Hillary Clinton talking about how the middle class needs a hand up. We need the economy for tomorrow. This is just tired nonsense. Yeah, it's it's, just, it's white noise that we hear repeatedly from these hacky ass politicians. So hacky. And did you see her video with her like coming out video for her? The one that like, looked like an insurance. Coach. Oh my god, it's <laughs> awful. You know, really carefully curated racial tapestry of different races one from this race just so you know someone at their job talking about how they're at the mill doing this and that or old lady talking about growing the business they, they, they got a gay couple to show there too like what, what, is this, what, what does that have to do with anything just trying to like appeal to identity politics without any substance at all and you know it will appeal to some people because people do go for that kind of thing but it's just kind of insulting to the intelligence of anybody out there including people from minority groups who want to see a real platform put forward and a real way to address social problems. At that end of that video, I have no idea what she stands for, other than the same platitudes and boilerplate sort of homilies that we always hear. And also the thing is, her, her campaign now is telling um, media outlets and reporters and journalists that um, the campaign has only just begun. She is taking the time to formulate her policies and to put together an agenda. You've been on the national stage since 1992. You've been a secretary of state, a senator, a first lady, and a former presidential candidate. I think by now you should know what you stand for and what you want to do as president of the United States. Why are you still 
trying to formulate an agenda unless you're just trying to package things so you can fight off um, leftist liberal criticism from you in the Democratic primary. Well, I, I think the best thing she has going for her is the thing that is unspoken, but she's the one, the, me, or like disaster. Because I don't know who else is running in the Democratic Kind of akin, similar to your, um, your um, analogy or your talk right, about right, Trudeau, Trudeau in Trudeau. Canada. Yeah. Right, exactly. And I mean, that's a pretty strong card, to be honest with you. It's strong it a strong card. I saw the tweet that you put forth on, you know, a couple of weeks ago or last week saying, now I have 19 months to rationalize why, why I'm voting for Hillary Clinton. Yes, this was a retweet of <laughs> somebody's tweet. Kept simple, sweet. Yeah, uh, and it's true. Like, you're going to... This is another problem, too. Why the hell the presidential elections go so long? That's Two a, years? Yeah, I wish we that's had... That's insane. The, I wish we had the system like they have in Canada, where it only lasts, what? Six, depends on. The most it can last is what? Like, not more than, like, eight months or something, but... Well, yeah, and there's an election but, right now in Britain yeah. that's only going to last for 42 days, yeah. I think. Right, exactly. And most often, it's, like, six weeks or eight weeks yeah, before yeah. again. It yeah. starts, but, uh... It's just... It's, like... It's still distracting from the actual issues mm. that face the country. And I think it's become, like, a long pageant or some sort of, like... Like a reality. Ultra-long reality. Who will be America's next president. top president? American yeah. Something like that. You're waiting for the gaffes. You're waiting for the elimination round. You're waiting for, like, all, like, all this fucking shit to happen. And, and like those reality shows, there's, so, there's going to be millions, if not billions of dollars, probably billions, billions. Oh, yeah. pumped into um, all these various presidential campaigns. And I think it's just, like, it's kind of telling that it's expected to be a form of entertainment as well, too. Because people want all their, you know, every social issue to be discussed news, everything has to have some veneer of sort of intel, you know, entertainment or some sort of like fun around now, whose fault is that? Is that the fault of the presidential no, I think aspirants or the media or both? They're catering to the lowest common denominator, which is an effective way of winning votes. Mm. It's not really an effective way of raising like the level of discourse among the body politic. Mm. Uh, so let's talk about another side kind of political dynasty before we move on. That's Rand Paul, um, whose father, of course, was Ron Paul, who just ran for president four years ago. Now here are his sons back running for president this time. But of course, Rand Paul used to have like this distinct personality, political personality, as a uh, Republican candidate. But now he's kind of gone back on these things. One of the big things that he opposed was um, military expenditures, and he wanted to cut the size of the military budget. Yeah. Now he's putting forth a proposal that would pump billions more into the, <laughs> the military budget. I mean, this oh, is all because... That's disgusting. The Republican Party and the base of that party are warmongers and people who want to see an expansive military state. That's what they live for. Right, exactly. He's just so disgusting, Rand Paul. You seem to have a visceral... You know, Rand Paul, I disagree with him a lot of things, but at least he's a person who has principles in some way. Rand Paul has no principles. And the way he opposes militarism... I almost just want to support militarism. In fact, he puts like great racist arguments to oppose it or something. And like, God knows what. He's just awful. He, he shilled himself out with the lowest common denominator as well. He took this sort of principled position against uh, you know, the Israel lobby in America. Then he went completely back on it again after because he realized he needs to get elected. He's not willing to take any stands which will you know, jeopardize his career's ambitions. He's just a dick. Like he's just a dick. His, his father was like racist, but he was like an like an unprejudiced racist. You know what I mean? Like it's more like an old time person. He's supposed to leave me alone. I'll leave you alone. Whatever. Oh, like to be dick. fair though, um, Ron Paul is uh, connected to these really um, racist newsletters from. Right, right. He is. So I'm not prepared to he's call one of those. Unprejudiced. No, no. I'm sorry. It was. He's those League of the South people. You know, like yeah. old time people. Yeah. 
okay, we don't have to like each other, but leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. I'm fine with that. Whenever Paul is like, no, I want to get in your business and I hate you. <laughs> I mean, I, one of the things I've always wondered about Rand Paul is how can he call himself with a serious face a libertarian when he is opposed to like women's reproductive rights. He thinks the government should be in the business of telling women what to do with their bodies. That seems counterintuitive to me when you think about libertarian ideology. But of course, I, Rand Paul is, I think, another person. I don't know what his agenda is because he's flip-flopped so easily and so quickly on these key issues. Um, oh, all I can think of is I mean, that his daddy was a congressman, a member of Congress, and he, you know, he ran for Senate in Kentucky and he wants to be a politician just like his father. You know, I'll give both. So he's really arrogant in thinking that he's going to be like depressed. super, super arrogant. He's super out of his depth, he thinks that. Yeah. Well, one thing I'll give him credit is there were two people who raised the racial aspect of the drug war. They have. But Rand, he's also expressed super racist opinions like the Civil Rights Act should have been repealed. That's such a privileged position because yeah. you should not compel businesses to do everything as though like it's an equal playing field. And, yeah. you, know, you should compel people to be treated equally with society by the law. It's a very, it's a very intellectually faulty position, particularly since the state already tells businesses to do all sorts of exactly, things right, when right. it comes to protecting a marginalized class, and that's a step too far for these people who believe in this. And by the way, if we want to talk about libertarianism, I know, I think that's a ridiculous idea. Uh, I think it's just a cover-up for people who don't want to call themselves conservatives and Republicans. Right, and they don't want and to... I would be embarrassed too if I were to share the common wheel. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, last, time, last time I was in Pakistan, I was thinking this is like a libertarian paradise because the government, yeah, the government doesn't do anything, and the rich people, whatever they have, they just pool their own money and like take care of their own services, buy electricity for the neighborhood or security, and you know, for everyone else, it's a free for all. That's what some of these people want. This is what they want. I think, oh my God, Rand Paul loves this shit right now. <laughs> basically, if we take all the brown people, sometimes there's some religious extremism um, within, yeah, exactly, like the libertarian movement. I would love to turn into all those countries. <laughs> do by those countries are not by choice. They want to turn by choice. They love this like. The paradise they're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Wow, Rand Paul, president of Pakistan. That'd be something to see. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to topic two. Um, Michael Eric Dyson, who's a professor at the, what's who's he teach? Georgetown University, um, penned this gigantic story, um, 9,600 words, a long story, I should say, where he attacks Cornell West in the most base ways and accuses him of um, being a, a weak academic, a fraud, a, a hypocrite, just all these sorts of things. And it's been getting a lot of play on Twitter and amongst the black intelligentsia, generally, specifically, but, but amongst the intelligentsia more generally as well, um, since you have these two scholars. Although I don't know if I would call Michael Dyson a scholar. You would? Yeah. I've read some of his books. Of, I mean, I know he's a professor and whatnot, but... See, I, I mean, I'm just like a, I'm like a just a poor black man from St. Louis, so I don't understand a lot of this stuff. Um, <laughs> but what is a scholar, though? Because okay, as I was reading Dyson's critique of West, mm. he took him to task because, as he accused West of not producing any genuine scholarship in the past ten or fifteen years or so, what, what qualifies? I think he's very ambiguously defined terms, and you can just cast someone in and out of that net as you see fit. I don't know, I think they're both scholars, I wouldn't, or they could both call, not be called, scholar, called, called scholars, there's no formal definition of that word. Apparently not. It just seemed to be like, uh, you know, it was a very well-written sort of diatribe against West. It was about 10,000 words, I clocked it today how many words it was, and I read it, and I was thinking that, you know, this could have been 
this space and this effort going to put such better uses and just, you know, trying to burn this guy, you know, some personal beef you have with him. And I think this whole thing of, you know, people tearing each other down, people who are on the same side, especially on most substantive issues, it seems like a waste of time. It seems counterproductive. It seems like if he had the cover story of TNR, he could have used that platform to do so much better things with this. Mm. And speaking of TNR, I mean, there were a lot of criticisms of um, uh, Dyson because he chose to um, pen this piece in the New Republic, yeah. which is for the longest time represented the absolute worst and horror Traditionally about racist. white American liberalism yeah, and their yeah. racism and white supremacy. So it's funny, if you want to use such a word, that Dyson would choose that as a venue to lash out and to try to disembowel. And he, he seemed to be aware, aware of that, too. He even brought up Leon Weaseltier's sort of racist uh, criticisms of Cornell West before, but he still did it. It's yeah. kind of surprising. <laughs> he did do it. Not only did he bring that up, or did he use that as a basis for his critiques of West, but he also quoted fucking Larry Summers. Larry fucking Summers. It's a man who may be a sexist as well, given his comments about women in academia, but a man who also represents like the worst when you talk about the revolving door between capitalism and the American government. And now you're using him to bash Cornell West? Right. Well, another thing I didn't like about the piece, you didn't choose to engage the substance right, of exactly. West's critique no, of the Obama. Exactly, right. I mean, we are all flawed characters. West is um, upset in his anger that when he went to the inaugural in 2009, his doorman at the hotel had a ticket, but he didn't. That's awful. That's elitist. That's awful. Right, we right. are all flawed characters, but when we're talking about these gigantic meta issues and politics, I, mean, I think it would behoove Mr. Dyson to at least have engage those critiques of West. He didn't well. engage them once. He engages critique of the drone war. He engages critique of his close relationship with Wall Street. It was just a personal attack. Which, I mean, again, like, if you want to disagree with Cornell West, there's ample opportunity to do Absolutely. so. Absolutely. You should. And you can even have personal connotation as well, too. But it shouldn't be all personal, especially if this is a serious work of scholarship, which is being edited and placed in a major publication. Absolutely. It just seems like a wasted opportunity. And, uh, you know, like I said, it was extremely well written. He put a lot of time into it. He's clearly a great mind. It could have been put something much better. And That's I'm what, sure, Sorry, go on. I'm sure Cornell West is going to respond, too. Oh, and, he has to. He has to respond. That was, like... He's not Cardinal West if he doesn't respond. Yeah, that was like <laughs> dropping like God knows what on him. He's going to have to come back. That's one of the things I mentioned, and um, Dyson says in the piece that Cornel West is an intellectual icon for the black masses. I take issue with that because I don't think the black masses, such as we are, know who Michael Eric Dyson is, know who um, Cornel West is, know who Maz Hussein or Juan Thompson are. They don't know these people. It's just it's a very insular little academic yeah, yeah, yeah. elitist cabal where you're having these sorts of fights. And you have to ask ourselves, so everything I do as a journalist and a writer, I'm asking myself, will this benefit and will this aid black folk, particularly poor black folk? What is the objective here? And I don't see any positive thing that's Is that a fire alarm? Uh, if it is, we'll, we'll... I don't think there's any positive objective coming out of um, this brouhaha between Cornel West and Michael Eric Dyson. This is some petulant intellectual fights. It has no relevance to the lives of any ordinary person outside the small little groups, people, most of whom are named in the article. Exactly, exactly. Um, so do you want to move on to Tony something good? I got I'm just bursting at the seams with Tony something. You told me something good. I'm going to explode, like, on Tony's... Well... <laughs> 
Bad words, bad words. But tell me something good. So, <laughs> what was it? Last month, I went to the Brooklyn Museum and I saw the exhibit by Keande Wiley. I think so. You pronounce his name. He's a black um, queer artist, and all of the paintings in the museum, or in pardon me, in his exhibit, were of classical um, paintings by obviously white people. But he'd taken and implanted in them instead black men um, dressed in. I guess what we can call contemporary urban clothing. Um, like there was a picture of Napoleon crossing a river, very famous um, painting, I can't remember the name of it, but it, instead of Napoleon, now we have Michael Jackson. And it was very well done, but I, as I've said before, I'm not an expert on art. I don't really get that much from this sort of art. Well, what did it mean? What was the meaning behind this? I guess that these white Western painters for the longest time had just erased black people from um, you know this particular field and so I guess he was making a statement by now they're trying to come back inserting them because they were always there of course but they just they weren't there in the eyes of white western painters I mean it was very well done as I said but I just didn't get it I mean I don't I see the overall the the political opinion that he's putting forth but just didn't didn't appeal to me I mean even when I when I go to most museums whether it be MoMA or maybe even the Met, um, just, I'm like, am I missing something? <laughs> am I just not intelligent enough to understand this? But then I was reading these essays from 1966 by Susan Sontag called um, On Interpretation. And she argues, Sontag does, she argues against us being too interpretive of just, we should just appreciate the art and go with whatever emotional response that the art profits to us. But of course, intellectuals... I wonder why that is where a piece of art an inanimate object can provoke an emotional response in you. I wonder, what is that representation of? Well, do you think it can? Do you think it can? It can. No, I've never been emotionally drawn to art. never looked at a piece of art and felt moved or perceived beauty in it? No. Really? I can honestly say. I look at the sky and I see beauty. I look at the ocean and mountains and the trees. You've never seen a piece of art that you like? I have. There are pieces of art I like, but I've never been. I've never looked at a piece of art, whether it be a statue, a sculpt, a sculpture, a painting, or a painting, that said, "Wow!" And I felt something. No, not like when I listen to music or anything. No. So that's what I'm saying. Maybe I'm missing something. But of course, music is a form of art. But I'm talking specifically about these genres. Yeah, yeah. Of art. And of course, like I'm, maybe I'm not intelligent enough to understand and to appreciate it. Well, I mean, I think this is, I don't also, I'm not an art connoisseur by any means. I think it's something, yeah, it's a learning taste, it's an acquired taste, which people have to teach you how to appreciate it in a way, which I've never been taught either. I was never taught either. Growing up poor in St. Louis, we didn't have access to that sort of art. And even in this city, sometimes it costs a shit ton of money to enter into these facilities. Oh, you know there's like bourgeoisie art, which is like made... It's most of the up, shit that I'm talking about. Yeah, and it's made for the consumption of people who don't have any pressing economic or... You know, existential problems. They can just ruminate on God knows what. They have the luxury and the luxury. privilege of doing so. They can yes. look at all the shit and just doesn't have to be a meaning to it per se. That's evidence, and it doesn't resonate with a lot of people because people are worried about daily, quotidian things, surviving day to day, and they need art which speaks to that reality, not to some reality which you know you have to be has to be explained to you in some abstract way. You know, and that ability to ruminate without directions, of, you know, it's a privilege of wealth. So true. Um, I also went to an event at MoMA recently about Jim Crow, about this new exhibit at MoMA concerning art that focuses on the horrors of Jim Crow. The conversation there was just dreadful as well, very bourgeoisie, very um, elitist, 
and I, you know, that's a different argument for me to get into, but as I've moved to New York recently and encountered the art scene in this city, I must say that it's just, it's really... <laughs> it's, it's, it fills you with rage? It does fill me with rage. It does anger me, because I think everything that's bad about American society when it comes to class, to economics, and to race, and to gender, um, you can find in this through this prism which you may view the New York art scene. I just find it odious, actually. It feels, it does feel with rage. I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> well, anyway, now that I'm done ranting, yeah. tell me something good. Uh, so I saw a movie last night at the Tribeca Film Festival. It's called Song of Lahore. It's about uh, these traditional Pakistani musicians who were you know, trying to revive traditional Pakistani music in Lahore. And they were invited to perform at the New York Symphony Orchestra with Wynton Marsalis and the story of how they went from Pakistan, where they came from. Wynton Marsalis suggests, what is it, the trumpet? The trumpet, yeah. Yeah. So they played a mixture of Pakistani music, Sufi music, with uh, jazz. And it was amazing. And it was was uh, was excellent. And uh, these guys actually grew up listening to Wynton Marsalis because in the 50s and 60s, they're older guys. Uh, the State Department had this program where they sent musicians abroad to try to spread American culture, and they inculcated people in Asia, including Pakistan, with great love of jazz in that generation. Dizzy Gillespie went there, uh, many people went there. So these guys came, and they were able to play these jazz songs on traditional instruments, and they played for the for Wynton Marsalis Orchestra. And it was great, and I think it showcased, you know, these guys were very poor, not from rich backgrounds at all, just trying to make it as musicians in Lahore and trying to, you know, keep this tradition of music and art going. And it portrayed a different side of Pakistan, which I kind of appreciate, because if you look at it from the news, it's only war and terrorism seen solely through this prism, which is like a lot of places in the world are depicted in this one-dimensional way. And it showed another side to it, and a side which I think more people experience than that other more sensational side. And it was a great film. I'd really encourage people to see it. Well, funny you mention jazz when you speak about art. Now, I love jazz music. Absolutely love it. I and mean, that's something that gets me emotionally going, especially if listens like some of the great songs like um, 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 Billy Holiday or Thelonious Monk or Charles Mingus, um, Dizzy Gillespie. That's like great music that really gets me going. Listen to Ella Fitzgerald singing some of her old classic songs. That's good shit. Um, wait, what's the point of me talking about jazz? You said you like jazz. Yeah, art. it's a form of art. Yeah. Wait. Well, we all seem to like music, though. I did sound like music. Wow. It's been a long day. It's been, it's been, it's been a You're long day. You're just getting the rust back off. I know. Right? We're getting the rust off. <laughs> season, season two premiere didn't go as... No, it was good. It's good. Bam, bam. It's good. Well, anyway, so thanks for listening. That's Maz and Juan. Uh, yes, I'm Maz. <laughs> and yes, I'm Juan. We're back. We hope you listen, and we hope you listen to us next weekend from here on out. We hope to have more guests on soon, because it's been you and me, like the dynamic duo for the last four episodes. Has it been? That's my count, yeah. But we got got some good stuff lined up. Yes, we do. All right, so thanks. Thanks.